Before we get started, we have some very exciting news to share. The second annual PetCon NYC will take place November 17th and 18th at the Javits Center. In case you're not familiar, PetCon is two days of insightful panels, fun activations, and can't-miss meet-and-greets with your favorite celebrity pets like Tuna Melts My Heart, Harlow and Sage, and Hamlet the Piggy. You'll discover new brands and can shop our highly curated selection of innovative favorite products. Hang out in the dog adoption garden and adoptable cat cafe, and maybe even bring home a furry best friend or two. We just started selling tickets and have a limited number of early bird tickets available, so make sure to visit petcon.co, that's P-E-T-C-O-N.co, and get your tickets today. You won't want to miss this. Now back to our podcast. Hi, I'm Lonnie Edwards, the founder of The Dog Agency and Pet Insider, and you're listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. This is a show about the latest and greatest across the pet world. Whether you're a pet parent or just a little pet crazy, Pet Insider has you covered. We get it. We're obsessed too. I think they give us all hope as to how to cope, how to exist, how to stay positive. I mean, more than anything, what we need now is, is advice and direction on how to stay positive in a world that's constantly pulling us down. And dogs have dialed that in. <laughs> you know, they have figured it out. That was Zach Scow, founder of Marley's Mutt, a nonprofit that believes dogs are medicine and strives to circulate that message. Zach will discuss how his rescue dogs saved his life, the amazing work he and his team are doing to save dogs' lives around the world, his positive change prison program, and lots more. Now let's get back to Zach. How did you get started with Marley's Mutts and Dog Rescue? What, what was the beginning? Well, the beginning was uh, 2004. I started volunteering for the Humane Society. Um, I had kind of spiraled into a very downward trend in my life, just addicted to drugs and alcohol. And I got involved with rescue really essentially to like salvage my life, just to be able to show that I was doing something redeeming um, so that I didn't quite hate myself so much at the end of the day. It was totally self-serving and 100% almost greed motivated. I just wanted to do something that I could tell other people was was worthy because at the time I was doing really nothing else but you know being addicted and and um, kind of destitute. So uh, that's how I started. And what really led catapulted me into Marley's mutts was my liver failed in 2008. So I was diagnosed with end stage liver disease, which is acute alcoholic hepatitis. I drank myself into liver failure, and um, I was given less than 90 days to live without a liver transplant. Wasn't going to get one because you need six months of sobriety to even qualify. So spent a couple of months in the hospital and um, I got released and entered into a transplant program at Cedar sinai in Beverly Hills, which is where I was born. Essentially what was gonna be, the place I was born was gonna be the place I was gonna die uh, were it not for my dog. So uh, once I was released from that program, they said, go home, stay close to a hospital and do anything you can to survive six months. And um, you know, the, the prognosis was very, very bleak, very, very, very bleak. And when I first got home, all I really wanted to do was commit suicide. And, but my dogs just wouldn't let me get there. Wouldn't let me go there. You know, the, the moment Marley's mutts was essentially born was when I was completely naked. I had just like gone to the bathroom on myself. I, had, I was, you know, probably the sickest sick person you can imagine completely yellow, you know, full, my belly is full of ascites. I was in complete kidney liver failure and, um, looked myself in the mirror and I saw this person that I didn't recognize and I started to cry, started to weep. And I, I looked around, looked behind me and, um, my dogs were all looking up at me. Like I was the sexiest person alive and, and like I could do no wrong. And, and, and more than anything, like they knew who I was, they, they believed in me and they saw me, you know, they saw inside of me. 
And I didn't think anybody saw anything but a very, very sick, scared, shitless kid. Um, but they did. They saw my potential. They saw what I could bring to the world. And, and it was really, honestly, that next morning that I started to journal and started to walk um, with my dogs up in the mountains, just one foot in front of the other. And that process, during that process, I started to get healthy, a little bit, little bit healthier and a little bit healthier. You know, if you graphed it on a chart, there was just this slight uptick in my blood test results and my spiritual well-being, my emotional well-being, started going to meetings. Fast forward six months and I was, not only did I qualify for transplant, but I didn't need one. So I had made six months sober, but by that time, I didn't need a liver transplant anymore. There was a, a huge miracle had been pulled off, and um, what was basically certain death got turned into Marley's months, you know. And, and uh, everybody just kept pushing me, and I just started adding foster dogs to my pack, just more and more and more dogs. And we started getting them adopted, and, and it just morphed into this canine community group that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and adding more programs and and just trying to affect the world in a positive way and and get to know kill and and help people and we call ourselves rescue dogs rescuing people and that's really what our our focus is when you're finding these dogs to foster and rescue how do you select them well the dogs we select now we have kind of a formula which helps us get social media support and helps us get the word out because we're in a very obscure county we're in a very unpopular it's like the, practically the dark side of the moon we're in kern county which is two hours north of la so directly north of la and there just isn't a lot of support there but there's a huge animal control problem when we got started there was 85 percent euthanasia upwards of 30,000 dogs um, a year so to, just a tremendous holocaust happening and virtually no rescues i mean and we were we were called Marley's mutts because Marley, who's th this dog right here, I'm tattooed on my arm. Um, he was kind of my pack leader, and and what we rescued was mutts. You know, all these other rescues that existed back then were German Shepherd Rescue, Doberman Rescue, Golden Retriever Rescue. There was no rescue for the dogs that I grew up with and the dogs that that I saw at the shelter. So that's how we kind of started Marley's mutts was was that focus. But um, to get back to your question, how we do it really is is rescuing completely hopeless dogs, dogs that have severe medical issues, dogs that have severe um, behavioral issues, dogs that are bottom of the barrel, completely hopeless. And we're able to get a lot of eyes on our social media with that, which then enables us to get the other hundred dogs that we have in our system, which are pretty much normal shelter dogs, you know, nothing too crazy or unique about them. We're able to get a lot of attention with those. So it started off as a weird format because a lot of people said, oh, all they do is rescue high profile dogs. They're just in it for the profile. And what people don't understand is we have 115 dogs. Of those 115, probably 10 are high profile. The other hundred or so are just normal dogs that need adoption. So people come to our website, they come to our social media to see these special dogs. And then in the process, they find all these other dogs. Can you talk about the special dogs a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, we have um, lately, for whatever reason, we've had a lot of two-legged dogs. We've had double amputees. So we have one uh, who's actually being uh, fostered by Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks. He's a really special dog. His name's Franklin. Uh, he's going to need double amputation in the front. Uh, we just had Cora Rose, you guys know of, who's our other two-legged dog who's in the jockey ad. We've had everything. We've had you know multiple gunshot wounds. We've had burn dogs, hung dogs, stabbed dogs, amputated dogs, everything you can imagine we've had. I mean, literally every scenario possibly imaginable we've encountered. A lot of times we get these requests from these obscure requests from like far-flung reaches of the world. You know, we've brought in countless dogs from Iran, India, Mexico, Thailand, Korea, China, 
anywhere you've Madagascar, like the craziest places, you know, we've accepted dogs from. And I randomly got a, um, a message from a gal who'd rescued a dog in Saudi Arabia. There's no animal organizations there. So she's just hustling to try and get this paralyzed desert dog. First time I saw it, I'm like, Oh boy, I don't think we can do this. You know, how are we going to pull that off? And then the people at jockey, said, well, we'll help you pull it off. So yeah, she showed up, she landed last night at like six in Dulles. And then we got a whole rescue train of people doing different legs down to Philadelphia from Philly to Jersey. We met him in Jersey at like 1.30 last night, picked him up, drove him back here, got back to the hotel at like 2.30. He's, yeah, he's in he's in bad shape, but all things considered, he's in pretty good shape. He'll, he's a great candidate for a wheelchair. He's gonna come live with me for a while. My wife, my daughter, and our brood of, <laughs> rescue horses and pigs and the rest of it. And, um, and he'll be just fine. He'll be up for adoption probably within a month or so. And how do you find all these people that helped with the, the driving and Facebook has revolutionized the way we're able to coordinate and pull off transport, specifically transport, specifically fostering that whole process. Cause we can, we can put a call out on Facebook, right? On our big page. We have 600, 700. I don't remember how many followers we have. I, a lot. I don't pay that much attention. to. <laughs> uh, I don't pay that much attention to Facebook, but I nurture it uh, very much. We also have a guy, Jason Stewart, who helps us with Facebook, which is great. Uh, but we can create groups within Facebook, little private groups, you know, that are all focused on transport, or you can go share your need onto transport pages. There's just, it's really easy to pull off the impossible using Facebook as a coordinating tool, you know, and then you can, you can supplement that with Twitter and Instagram to also drive people to where you need them to be. And, and you get a lot of like-minded people, a lot of, a lot of folks, you know, that are in rescue say, oh, I hate, I love animals. I hate people. And quite to the contrary, I absolutely love people. And because of social media, we're able to really harness people to help save a whole lot of dogs. And without human beings, first of all, human beings are animals, you know, and, uh, and without humans, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. And, and social media really coalesces the necessary elements that we need to pull off miracle after miracle, you know? So going back a little bit, how did you develop that following? Uh, vulnerability, period, one word, vulnerable. That's what you gotta do. When I started this, I was scared to death of the whole world, you know, scared of people, places, and things. You know, I had been drinking 24 hours a day for eight years up until that point. And, every day for probably 12, 13 years. Um, so I had simply no idea how to live. I didn't know how to have a conversation like this. I didn't know how to talk to women. I didn't know how to talk to men without sizing them up. I didn't know how to um, cope with a lot of different situations. And when you're an addict and an alcoholic in recovery, especially if you've just began, you know, your, your aging process essentially stops when you start drinking. And I was very young when I started drinking. So I had a lot of maturing to do uh, and I kind of did that openly and just talked about what I was feeling, talked about my, my problems, talked about everything that I was encountering as a human being. And instead of being full of shit, I just kept it real and tried to be as honest as I could about what I was experiencing. And that included what the dogs were experiencing. So I think people just found it refreshing to see someone experiencing life for real, you know? Uh, and, I'm, and I hope I don't lose sight of that. I really want to stick to that because that's what brought everybody into this realm and even people that aren't involved in rescue, you know, I'd say the bulk of the people that follow us weren't involved in rescue. They got to rescue, you know, following our story. And, um, and essentially what we do is, you know, I'm a broken, physically, emotionally, spiritually broken individual that's rebuilt himself through rescue. And that's what we do with the dogs also. They're physically, spiritually, emotionally broken and we, and we build them up and then send them on their way. So 
it's the whole process of supporting the underdog of giving a second chance of that whole process to shine a light on it is really really positive it might start out or it might have negative elements being that these dogs are abused they're neglected whatever but the end result 99 percent of the time is is tremendously positive and it really gives people hope in their own lives following animals helps people understand how to how they can confront life's issues because we watch how gracefully dogs approach physical injuries um, situations that they've been involved in they don't close themselves off to people even though they've been you know markedly abused i think they give us all hope uh, as to how to cope how to exist how to stay positive i mean more than anything what we need now is is advice and direction on how to stay positive in a world that's constantly pulling us down and dogs have dialed that in <laughs> you know they have figured it out so we follow and your profile has grown so much you're now on a billboard in times square can you talk about that a little bit yeah i can talk about that you can't see me blush on the radio but um <laughs> It's, it's still one of those things I still have a hard time with myself. You know, I still, um, I have a really well-worn rut, which tells me that I need to change or that I'm not good enough, that I'm, that I'm all these things. So when I see a billboard of myself in my underwear, I, I, uh, I don't know, I pull back. You know, I look and I go, oh my God, look at that. And I start to pick apart the way I look or the way I sound or, or whatever. Just, it's my nature to be hypercritical. And it's something that I'm absolutely working on. I think I probably feel better now than I ever have, but it's a real test to see yourself, you know, up on the, the big screen, you know, we're on like nine screens in Times Square and um, it's intimidating. But at the end of the day, it's incredibly wonderful. And the opportunity that Jockey's given us to reach this kind of an audience and to pick a guy that, you know, my story isn't pretty. It's very ugly. I mean, it's dark, 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 dark. And for them to select me and, and highlight my struggle from, from that point to now. And it's kind of a, a validation that lets me know that I've done something very right and that the world at large is interested in, in how I got from, you know, essentially destitute to, to the point I am now, you know, where I live to give back to, to other, other things and, and other beings. So at the end of the day, I'm just thrilled that they, that they chose us. And, and really, they, I've got to profile my, my purpose. Like the part of the campaign is show them, show them what's underneath, you know, show them completely be a thousand percent vulnerable, which is what this ad is, is it's complete vulnerability. But at the same time, show them your purpose. So I get to share with the world my purpose and what I, my purpose is saving dogs, is rescuing dogs and using those rescue dogs to help rescue people and bringing light to far flung reaches of darkness. And, um, it's remarkable. I get to share my purpose with everyone. That's what I'm a professional dog rescuer. That's what I do. And, and we get to share that purpose with the world and it's, it's real special. What is your day to day like? Oh man. My day to day is constant, a frenetic pace from, from go until I, my head hits the pillow, you know, so probably 7 a.m. until 11 p.m., probably working most of that time. Now that I have a daughter, I, I make it a, a really strict point to separate that time. I have a good chunk from when I get home at whatever, like seven or eight to take time with my family. I, I have to make sure that that's a priority. And so I, I think for the first time <laughs> I've achieved some balance in that realm. But yeah, essentially what we do is we're at the shelter just about every day. So we have nine shelters in our region and then a whole bunch more in Los Angeles that we also rescue from. So we're constantly pulling dogs. We're constantly educating. We have a Miracle Mutts program, which is a couple dozen therapy dogs, which travel throughout our community and go to everything from senior living facilities to cancer facilities, to children's hospitals, to schools for autistic children, to schools for, you know, physically and mentally handicapped adults. Every day of the week, we're out 
sharing our dogs. And we have an education program that's active all week. So we have different departments that are doing different things. Spay and neuter, education, Miracle Mutts. We operate a prison program. So I spend a couple of days a week in prison in a maximum security prison in California. We currently operate out of four prisons. Uh, we have dog programs where our dogs live for 12 weeks for three months at maximum security prisons. We're currently expanding to a juvenile program, the first of its kind for juvenile girls, 13 to 18 years old, the, the most neglected cross-section of people on the planet, the most, the least empowered, the least um, recognized group are of child offender girls. So we look to change that and give them a chance to not end up as a statistic in, you know, adult prison. So what yeah. What do the prison dogs do? What are they, do they therapy do? dogs or what is their purpose? Well, the dogs go straight from high kill shelters to prison. So they'll go to a foster home for a week or two, just get vetted you know, from a veterinary standpoint. And then they go into prison. They live there inside of the housing unit for three months and they train canine good citizen certification. So it's a 10 point test, which is probably 99% of dogs can't do the, all the 10 points on the canine good citizen certification. It's your first step. It's your first big step towards therapy certification. So once you get canine good citizen certification, all you need is service hours or therapy hours in order to be qualified as a therapy animal. So that's what they're going towards is working towards that certification. It really just gives us a good construct to follow for training because we have these 10 points that they have to be able to pull off. Um, so that's what they do. And in the meantime, I mean, in the process, they give uh, their inmate handlers a really good shot at becoming dog trainers. Um, it opens them up emotionally. It desegregates the, the housing unit. Everything is segregated in California prisons. There's blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians, Northerners, Southerners, black gorilla family, Aryan brotherhood, they don't interact. There's no interaction. It's very racially separated. So with our program, they have the opportunity to interact with one another. And they also have the opportunity to show their family what it's like to be a dog rescuer and a dog trainer. These people have been out of sight, out of mind, scourges of their family for, in many cases, decades with nothing to feel proud of, no purpose, no direction, no hope. And now all of a sudden they're dog trainers, they're dog rescuers, they're contributing to something other than themselves and they're, um, they have a future. So all six of our guys that have been released from prison who have graduated our program are currently dog trainers, every single one of them. And 80% of violent offenders usually end up back in prison within three years. And we're hoping to break that cycle, you know, and, and really at the end of the day, people don't so much mind where you come from if you can help them with their dog. So uh, that's what we're finding is they're very warmly accepting our guys into their hearts. So shout out to Cool, shout out to Troy, shout out to Jason, um, everybody who's on their way out, Drew, all of our guys, I'm so proud of them. They're just special, unique individuals. Daniel, all of our inmates that have been released, they're just special dudes. I mean, really they are the biggest source of untapped potential on planet Earth. You got three million people in the United States living inside of a prison. And those people are, not given a chance. They're not tapped into. They're essentially ignored. A lot of these people are very smart, you know, and uh, brilliant even. Uh, they just come from a situation that they don't, um, that isn't very advantageous. And they really show us what they're made of, man. And, and they're, they're incredible trainers. I mean, they really are. So my goal is to tap into that potential and really give them a second chance like we give these dogs a second chance. How did you go about starting that program? Man, I tried for years to get this program started. I, I believed in it for a long time. Uh, one of our guys, Robbie Miller, he was our ranch manager for a while. He was in prison for 12 years, got out of prison, 
we set him up with a dog, which ended up really saving his life, um, prevented him from going back to prison, gave him a therapy outlet, as well as just forced him to interact with people because you have a dog and you bring that dog around with you everywhere. You're, you're pretty much forced to interact. So that dog really saved his life and it really made us realize like we need that there's more to this. We need to get this into as many prisons as we can. So Lisa Porter and Leah Marquez helped us develop a curriculum. Uh, they're amazing trainers, you know, terrific, terrific trainers. And we developed this program and wrote the curriculum and, and constructed the operational procedure to fit within different prison constructs, which is a big challenge. I mean, we could expand this program to any prison so long as we had the money. Um, the, the biggest you know, for any legislator or official listening out there, prisons aren't supporting these programs with money. We have to do it on our own, which is a joke. The fact that we're saving the state and the country as much money as we are by having these guys not go back into prison, immediately within one round, it pays for itself. So it's shocking to me that programs like ours aren't propped up and, and circulated to as many prisons as possible. We've made the housing units safer, they're healthier, there's less drug use, there's less crime, there's less assaults on staff. Across the board, it's made it safer, but we're still not seeing the support that we need from administrative and legislative sources. So if you guys want to get dog programs in every prison, reach out to your local legislator and tell them to contact Zach at Marley's Month. We helped push a petition years ago. I went to Korea to do like undercover work for the dog meat trade to kind of expose. This is before it was really a thing. Can you talk about that actually, the undercover work? Yeah, that uh, that was tough. That was uh, interesting. I mean, when I first learned about it, we were we were taking dogs in from Korea from this gal Nami. She's kind of the foremost frontline rescuer in Korea. She's very abrasive, very polarizing, and yeah, we started rescuing dogs with her. She was sending dogs to us from Korea. Some of them were paralyzed. Some of them were. So we did. Uh, she was telling us about all this stuff and sending us, you know pixelated video and I couldn't believe what we were seeing. I mean, there's everything from basically dog butchers that are connected to restaurants. I mean, we went to a place that had a huge dog kennel in the back of the restaurant. Yeah, she even like stormed into the restaurant and like caused a scene. Pretty much almost fought the owner of this restaurant. We're four hours outside of Seoul. No one speaks English. I look like a complete Barney. I have like American mesh, American flag hat on, like a zookeeper's outfit with a bunch of like zippers and stuff on it. You know, um, just looking like a complete tourist. The whole point was to look like a representative of America. You know, I was supposed to intimidate these dog meat farmers and and dog meat um, butchers into giving us dogs. So I had all my camera equipment and I'd say like, basically, I'm gonna report you with all this footage I got if you don't give us what we need, which is we're taking some of your dogs. And so we were able to do that. We took a handful of dogs when I was there. We rescued a couple from that restaurant back in May. And then we rescued a golden retriever named Soul from this really abysmal dog meat farm in the countryside that had probably, I know Nami was able to shut it down. It's really awkward. It was kind of um, a pound, it was like a local pound. So the guy that worked there would round up dogs from neighborhoods, right? Strays, stuff like that. He would also buy dogs that were rounded up um, from different like brokers. So the dogs that ended up there were a combination of bred dogs. Um, some of them were captured, some of them were stolen, some of them were bought. It's just a whole menagerie of animals that, that wound up there from different sources. And everything from mastiffs to boxers to golden retrievers to the typical Korean dog is called Narangi, which is like the literal translation. You're gonna have to bleep me as dog. Mm -hmm. And then also there's the Korean dog, the Korean national dog, which is Jindo. So there's kind of like Jindo Narangi crosses. There's a, there's a very typical looking dog in Korea that is kind of a cross between Narangi and, and Jindo. Yeah, it was just very eye-opening. We took a lot of footage. It got a lot of people focused on it. 
And then our buddy Mark Ching really blew it all wide open. And Mark was able, he's American Chinese, and he was able to go over to Asia with Animal Hope and Wellness Foundation and really expose all of those. The really terrible videos are all videos that Mark uh, took behind the scenes uh, posing as a meat trade buyer. You know, so that's what he did. And he went about four or five months after me and really just blew it all wide open. And now HSI, you know, Humane Society International is involved. We've been working with Soy Dog Foundation for years, for probably four years. They're in Thailand. They do meat trade rescue as well. We've been over there a couple of times and brought dogs back, usually like 10 dogs at a time. And they have a huge facility in Buriram, about three hours outside of Bangkok, another facility in Phuket, which is the Northern Island. When we were in Korea, you know, it was dicey. It was very hairy. I mean, I, I was with a, you know, walking uh, by myself, you know, in this this market in downtown Seoul where, you know, I saw dogs being boiled alive, set on fire. And you're trying to get footage of this, you know, without being obvious, but it's very, very difficult. And I stuck out like a sore thumb. You know, there's just no way to blend in when you're a tattooed white guy with cameras, you know? So yeah, it was, it was tough. I and mean, we, we almost got, I mean, we did get assaulted at um, another market near downtown Seoul. It's a really interesting, Korea is an amazing dichotomy. It's very, very strange because you have, like in downtown Seoul, there's a huge mall. And at the top floor of this mall is this huge dog, like Disneyland. And it has on this wall, they give the whole history of the dog and how different breeds popped up. And they have these amazing demonstrations that they do for Frisbee and Shitson training and, and protection work. And so they, they really just coalesce, a, like the whole community comes to this place and they focus on dogs and on nurturing dogs and caring for dogs and talking about dogs. It's really wonderful. There's nothing like it in America. It's beautiful. And at the same time, like two miles away from there is a, is a market where you can literally walk up to a, a butcher who has 15 dogs behind him, order one of his dogs, he'll put it in a, in a noose, electrocute it to death, and then go cut it up for you. So it was very strange, like meeting the director of that organization, sitting down with him and local politicians, and they would just nod at me, and I would show them my footage, and they'd go, oh, yes, yes, yes. And then they just asked to delete it. They didn't address it. They didn't talk about it. They just wanted to take it off of my phone and camera. It was very bizarre. It's all part of saving face, you know, saving face and not wanting this information to get out. But at the same time, so they would show me all this positive stuff that they were doing, but not really address any of the negative stuff that was going on. They just kind of tried to write it off like this is stuff that happens um, in the countryside. And um, it's a very interesting topic to have the dog meat trade because the, the natural progression of the, when you unpack the logic is, you know, how hypocritical you guys all eat meat, you eat pigs, you eat cow, you know, cattle are sacred in India. What's, what's the difference between consuming dog and consuming, you know, pig or cow? And the answer is not so much the consumption of the meat, but it's the way in which they're disposed of. Dogs are specifically tortured to death. So essentially so that they're coursing cortisol through their veins as much as possible at the time of extinction, you know, the, so they are, they're tortured to death so that they believe at that moment where they're in extreme agony, their, you know, the, their muscles and their blood flow has cortisol and, and adrenaline and stress hormone pumping through it, therefore making its kind of mystical properties more effective. So they believe that dog meat um, helps you stay cool in the summertime. It gets very, very hot in Korea and it helps you stay warm in the wintertime. You know, specifically dog meat soup is something that the culturally they believe helps regulate your temperature. They also believe it brings you virility. And so once you've, if you've 
if you culturally convinced a people that this consuming this meat is going to help them with the virility and their temperature modulation, then, you know, chances are they're going to do it. And that's what they do. I mean, it does, it's completely unscientific and it is false, but that's why they do it, you know? And it's also not very overt, you know, typically they, they consume dog meat soup, which is very, you know, you don't necessarily know what you're eating. It's not like you're, 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 throwing back dog ribs, you know, but at the same time that that's one of the reasons why it's so dangerous is because it is kind of seems innocuous being in a, in a soup or something. It's not as obvious, but um, that's the reason why it's a big deal is the way that they're, that they're tortured to death. Not that cattle aren't. I mean, I really hope this gets us into a discussion of how all of our animals are treated at the moment of death. How, I mean, I firmly, firmly believe that, you know, our reincarnation and, and, Energy cannot be created nor destroyed, right? And so an animal's energy, their spirit is is perpetuated when they're killed. It still exists. It's out there in the universe. And when you torture them at death, that energy is is tortured, you know? So that energy is going to to resurface and re-feed itself, you know, back into into our culture in a very negative way. I believe that it's just it's negative karmically, you know, to to torture animals at their death. How you leave this world has a whole lot to do with how you're reincarnated, how you end up, how your energy ends up recirculating, you know? So I just believe that the moment of death is such a critically important time for all of us that when you leave this world, it should be peacefully, you know, it should be with love. It should be at least not being tortured. And for the record, people are probably like, how did you not intervene when you saw dogs being tortured and it took everything in me not to. And you know, when you're being chased out of a parking lot, you know, by men on mopeds with clubs, you know, you're not thinking about making a stand, you know, you're in a country where you don't speak the language. You have no idea what their criminal justice system is like. It's best to just, you know, do your job and, live to fight another day. So we're still involved in that. We bring meat trade dogs uh, into prison. Also, we've had a number of Chinese dogs from Yulin go through our prison program. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, we, we take any dog that needs help. We're going to bring into our system and try and shoot it out the other end, you know, rehabilitated and on the course to adoption, you know, what is that rehabilitation process like and how long does it take? Well, it all depends. A lot of dogs will progress and get to where they need to be just by being in a foster home scenario. So we have foster training. We try to give our fosters as many tools as possible to adjust to these dogs that really need a tremendous amount of work. Sometimes they just need to decompress, uh, realize that they're not in any danger, let that kind of frequency melt away because they're at this frequency of like, everything's chaotic. They've, they've set the frequency in their mind to be, oh my God, you know, what's happening. And then, so after a, a week or two, they tend to, you know, discover their dogness. And that's, that's the whole point. That's the only thing we're trying to do is allow them to be dogs again. That's the whole point of fostering and rehabilitation is just take a dog that's had post-traumatic stress, which they absolutely get just like humans and, and, um, you know, allow them to kind of be themselves again. Um, so it's a pretty, you know, some dogs are, are by far worse than others. You know, some we've had a really, really hard time with and others just, they are like true dogs. They just come out the other end, you know, completely rehabilitated and focused on love. You know, that's, I think that's what we appreciate the most about dogs is their ability to be resilient and bounce back despite you know, situations that should probably prevent them from being normal ever. You know, if any, if, if, if any of us sitting at this table had been through something like that, the chances that we'd come back from it are pretty low, but with a dog, they're, they're very high that they can be successful, productive, you know, 
members of society. <laughs> Are they doing any work to control it? No, the, the dog meat trade, because of the exposure that it's had and because of the Olympics and all these other things, um, Korea has made definite strides towards, you know, exposing the, the tradition. Um, same with China, you know, it's, it's definitely. So progress is being made. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't, once something is exposed that, that is that polarizing, something is bound to change. And so there's definitely a shift that's taken place. Um, but more needs to happen because chances are if we just recognize that it's changing and then leave it alone, it's just going to go back to where it was. So we need to just keep our foot on their neck, so to speak. Can you talk about the Miracle Mutts? Yeah, of course. So Miracle Mutts was created by Liz Cover, who's our Canine Assisted Activities Director. Um, and she's got a master's degree in that field. She graduated from Bergen University, which is Bonnie Bergen's. She created Canine Companions for Independence. Uh, CCI, the biggest guide dog service on planet Earth. And we've always wanted to get into education. You know, the only way you can solve the problem of euthanasia, the only way you can you can end the Holocaust that's happening in this country where three million animals are euthanized a year is by education. You know, if we try and rescue our way out of this problem, we're putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. You know, we're putting a Band-Aid on a decapitation is really a better way to put it. There's just no way we're going to rescue our way out of this issue. We have to do it through spay and neuter and education. Um, so that's how it originated. It was just we wanted to get as many dogs into, you know, vulnerable populations as possible. Not even just vulnerable populations, but everybody. What I've uncovered in all this work is that people tend to think it's socioeconomic in nature. And it can be the problem of euthanasia. A lot of dogs do come from poor neighborhoods. There's less spay and neuter, there's less money for it. But you're almost just as likely to have a soccer mom, you know, drop off their labradoodle at the shelter because it pees in the bedroom as you are, you know, a, a problem that would arise from a, from a poor family. So really we're just trying to get the word out to as many people as possible that dogs are medicine. You know, our goal is to share that dogs are medicine, that they, that they help us get through this life, um, with a smile on our face, that they provide us with unconditional love, which is something that does not exist in high supply in this world, that they teach us how to reciprocate love, that they, um, that they are our, our mentors, our trainers, our teachers, our therapists, our spirit guides, they're all of those things. And if we just pay a little bit more attention to them, chances are we can lead a lot more sane life. So we're just trying to bring these dogs in. And, and um, we also have a curriculum that goes along with Miracle Mutts called Pledge, which is positivity and leadership, positivity, leadership, empathy, in dog guardianship. So it's kind of a stretch of an acronym, you know, animal welfare, we need acronyms for everything. Uh, and the goal is to just teach common core curriculum and we teach them through kind of the majesty of dogs about compassion. We teach them about giving back. We teach them about all the factors involved with our current, you know, shelter problem in America. And, um, and hopefully we implant the idea of adoption into their families, which is very, very successful. If you want to get at a community in terms of spay and neuter, or in terms of you know just euthanasia in general, adoption, get to the kids. We give our pamphlets, our pass out, you know, our flyers to kids when we go into school. They bring them to their parents and there's a much higher chance that we're gonna have a full spay and neuter day if we've gone to school before that because the parents listen to their kids. How big is your core team? Yeah, it's funny, you know, one of the things one of the things that's critically important in dog rescue is a lot of people ask me, they go, Is this your full time job? And then I go, yes. And they go, oh, wow, I wish I could be a dog rescuer for, for a living. And they don't realize that it's 100 hours a week uh, and you're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, period. There is no way around it. You are working harder than most anybody will ever work. 
Um, that's the first thing, you know, and you're constantly sacrificing, you know, um, I don't know how many from iPods to phones, to shoes, to belts, to everything in my house has been destroyed. Carpets have been replaced. Floors have been ripped up. You know, it is a constant sacrifice, but the upside is that you're, you, you, you genuinely feel like you're part of something greater. You're, you're a part of this mechanism for good and you're constantly aware of it. So for me, there's no other way I would live, but make no mistake about it. It is 1000% a sacrifice uh, at all times. And that's a sacrifice with your family. I mean, I'm on this trip. I didn't plan on being in New York. I got sent to New York, you know, because we had a chance to save a life. So I left and, and my wife understands that. Um, but it's still very difficult. You know, I, I didn't get to see my, you know, my daughter develop her first big giggle. You know, I missed that moment. So it's unfortunate, but it's also, you know, it's what saved my life. It's what got me on this path and I'm, I'm never going to abandon it. But if we're to be successful in rescue, if we're going to attract the best, the brightest, and really make huge shifts in this in this world where we're not killing three million dogs a year, um, we need to operate like a business. You need to have nonprofit rescue organizations that operate like a business. You have to have an executive director. You have to have a well thought out, well constructed board of directors. You have to have a team behind you that you pay. You know, in most cases, I mean, if you're just rescuing, you can survive on a, on just a group of people that are motivated. But if you're if you're implementing programs, educational programs, therapy programs, spay-neuter programs, prison programs. You have to treat it like any other organ, any other business. You have to pay your employees. You have to have insurance. You have to have workman's comp. You have to, everything, every I needs to be dotted, T needs to be crossed. And what we're seeing now is a lot of rescue organizations fall off the wayside or get targeted by the IRS because they're not complying. And um, so for all those people who say, you know, I can't believe this guy's a dog rescuer for a living. You know, that that's how we're going to beat this problem is by having well-organized business-like nonprofit organizations that can attack the problem from a strategic standpoint. And, you know, and you can only do that when you're functioning like a company, you know. And are there plans to expand beyond California? Yes, definitely. Our goal is to get positive. I want to have positive change in every prison. There's no reason why it shouldn't be in every prison. If you, if you ever got to go into a prison, whether it be a women's facility, a juvenile facility, or a men's maximum security prison, the thing that jumps out at you is, oh my God, these guys aren't getting anything but interactions with other inmates. So they're only learning how to become better criminals. They're shutting themselves down emotionally and they are 1000% unprepared for life on the outside. And in many cases, they've been in for years, years and years and years. You know, a lot of our guys have been in for 20 years and they're just getting out 25 years. They've been in since they were 16. They have no idea how to live, no clue. And we're unleashing these people into society without the first idea of really how to take care of themselves. They either have to depend on family to prop them up. They can't sure as hell can't get a job, especially when you're a violent criminal, a violent felon. Good luck. You know, the chances are you are going to create another victim. That's what boggles my mind about all of this is if these people don't have a means to provide for their family or be successful on the outside, they are only going to create another victim. And that victim might be someone that you care about. So we better, we better get our act together and, and start to figure out a way to empower these people to have a better life, a different life, and really focus on the idea of second chances. Are we gonna give them a second chance or are we only gonna fake give them a second chance? Because what I see now is, is absolutely the latter. These, we're giving them fake second chances. We're saying, all right, head on home, you're out of prison, congratulations, you know, well done on your 17 years. Um, here's $47.30 and a bus ticket best of luck and no skills. They don't know how to write. They don't know how to read. They don't know how to do math. The most basic of things they are, are absent in them. 
So there's just no accountability in the criminal justice system. And we need to, we need to ask for it. We need to demand it. And we need to demand programming, programming that opens these guys up emotionally and gives them opportunities vocationally. What can the listeners do to help? Well, listeners can support their local rescue, you know, depending on where you are. If you're here in New York, you know, there's a bunch of great rescue organizations. You know, um, one of my favorite is, is SCAR, Sean Casey Animal Rescue. They're in Brooklyn. They do great work. Uh, or you can, you, know, you can certainly follow Marley's Mutts on social media. We're on Instagram at Marley's Mutts. We're on Twitter at Marley's Mutts. Um, Facebook, Marley's Mutts Dog Rescue. And just get involved, you know, uh, get involved. Share stuff, comment on stuff, donate. Really, uh, if you're having a birthday, you know, support your local nonprofit organization for your birthday and just get involved. And we, we run the Chicago Marathon every year. We did the New York Marathon last year. Those are our biggest fundraisers. So when you lock in, when you take the focus off of yourself and you're able to focus on providing a future and support to something that's helpless, there is no greater feeling. So what we miss in this world is purpose. We miss finding out how we can make the world a better place. We get stuck in our the humdrum, just monotony of trying to keep our head above water and provide a living for ourselves that we forget what our purpose is. And we, we start to find our purpose in being of service to others. And being of service to others is what will blow your hair back. It's what'll give you goosebumps. It's what'll make you wake up in the morning with a stoke that you can't get by just providing for yourself. You know, and, and that's what you can get with animal rescue. When you, when you get to see the fruits of your labor, say for instance, you foster. And you get to guide that dog through what started out as an abysmal situation and they get to come out the other end and, and, and get to be a little furry medicine, piece of medicine for their family. You know, that's, that's an amazing turnaround. You get to provide, like I said, a best friend, a therapist, a, a family member. You know, a lot of our dogs go to, to homes with kids, you know, and everyone remembers their dog from when they grew up. So when you get to provide a family with that, um, something that came from really nothing and developed into that, it's, it's very special. You know, and um, when you get it, when you coalesce a group of people around an idea like that, really positive things happen, you know, and it's my goal that to, to make rescue more positive and to really talk about the, the positive aspects of what we're all doing. Rescue can be a very ugly, ugly, negative, misanthropic space where people just talk about hating humans and, you know, rescuing animals. And it's got to be more than that. It's got to be us collectively working for good towards good. It can't be pointing fingers, talking smack, all the things that rescue has become this really negative space of chopping one another down. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't a mean girls club. We're saving lives here. You know, we need to act accordingly. That was Zach Scow, founder of Marley's Mutts. To stay in the loop, follow Marley's Mutts and Zach Scow on Instagram. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave us an awesome review and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you have any pet-related topics you want us to cover, email us at podcast at petinsider.com. To listen to past episodes, visit petinsider.com slash podcast. I'm Lonnie Edwards, and thank you for listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. Talk soon!